0: Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to 1 Timothy 3 and 4. So we get the context here of the text I'd draw your attention to, 1 Timothy 3 15 or 16. I'll read from both chapters 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy in the inspired Word of God. Let's begin reading at verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3 after having listed. Qualifications for Elders and Deacons, something that concerns us as we will install presently an elder and a deacon, the Apostle goes on to speak of things that are necessary for conduct and ministry and godliness in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. First Timothy 3.14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory." Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, Nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach, that no one despise your youth, but be an example in the believer's to the believers in word and conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that's in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things, give yourselves entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. As far we read, this word to young minister Timothy, to your servant, and to all of us who are the believers in the gospel. And perhaps this is one of the great statements of the gospel, our text in 1 Timothy 3.16. Let me read that to you again. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. This morning, we were privileged to hear of the great mystery of ungodliness, that was a word with regard to the sin of Israel at the border of the land of promise, a word that was of their history and their seduction by Balaam to commit idolatry and immorality through the lore of Balaam and the babes of Midian and Moab. Theirs was a a great mystery that they would act so. It's a great mystery their ungodliness at this time because God had brought them so far and he had cared for them all along the way. They had never wanted for water or for bread or any kind of need. And they had had guidance, they had had protection from enemies in, at every step of the way. Even this second generation had complained and shown they were not worthy. But it still was a great mystery, a great thing, a strange thing, that such a people so blessed of God could act this way and seek after the things not of Egypt now, but of Moab and of Midian, the things of paganism and the lust of the flesh. This makes it all the more amazing, the truth of our text, which is, to be seen on the mystery of ungodliness, especially in the house of God. Here's the mystery of godliness, of God's own godliness, and of the godliness that the gospel works as it has its way in us by the Spirit working through truth to make us godly in reaction to the truth of Christmas and everything about Jesus. I want to consider this at this time, this great mystery of godliness, on the backdrop of the darkness of the mystery of ungodliness, especially among God's people, but to keep us from that, to help us to deal seriously with the truth of of the wonderful incarnate babe, the Son of God, and to come away from the festivities as those who are heartened by the gospel, that is, the gospel of our salvation. And so let's consider the mystery of godliness and how this is revealed, first of all, in Christ Jesus. This is basically our text. God manifest in the flesh and so on. And then we want to consider what Paul is also getting at, that there is this mystery of godliness that's revealed and ought to be in the church. And then finally, we want to consider that this Revelation occurs of godliness, the godliness of God and his church, in the dark. And I'm going to deal with that whole uh, phrase of without controversy that's mentioned here in the text at the beginning of it. You have have here, beloved, a great thing called mystery, a great mystery of godliness, just to disabuse you of... Some ideas of mystery, mysteries in the Bible are not things that are so profound, deep or magical, perhaps, as we might say, that you can never know them. In fact, the idea of a mystery in the Bible is that it's a truth that has been hidden, to be sure, but it is now known. The great mystery, in fact, doesn't even stress the hiddenness so much as the fact that now is there, there is revelation of something that was hidden. But indeed, mystery in the Bible has to do with a great thing, and so the text is appropriately speaking of a great thing, the great mystery of the incarnation and everything about Jesus. So there's something that was hidden, and now in this New Testament, such Paul is writing, there is something revealed of, in fact, the greatest thing in the universe, the truth of God. And the truth of God, who is not ashamed to call a people to Himself, whose good pleasure was to choose this people for Himself, and then whose grace was to save them, pe- those people from themselves and from Satan, and from death, and from the clutches of demons. This is the great thing that's revealed at Christmas time. Oh, if only people would understand this. The great mystery is given for us to know, because God has given great faith, and may he work that faith in us tonight, as we hear this truth of Christmas, and as tomorrow we also meditate upon the things of Christmas, once again, we and our children. God is manifest in the flesh here. There's some controversy among theologians and commentators uh, about whether the word God should be there. They cite other manuscripts and they say, well, it's really not uh, necessary that we have the truth of the Incarnation here. Let's just say he was manifest in the flesh. But, beloved, we have to hold on to the truth here. The Bible is teaching God manifest in the flesh here. And in texts like John 1, where the word of God dwelt among us and so on, this was the truth of Jesus with us. God with us in Him. Here is the great truth of the Incarnation, a a wonderful basic doctrine of Christianity. And perhaps this is one of the greatest texts that speak of the Incarnation of the Savior besides the history. You have this doctrinal statement here of what Bethlehem was all about and what the conception, the Holy Spirit conception was all about because this is not simply a a statement here, maybe in some creed, though there is a creedal connotation here, but this is for practical Christianity. Great is the mystery of godliness. What this truth does to you matters, and what it must do to you matters, so receive it as a truth for your godliness. But God's manifest in the flesh, According to his plan, his good pleasure, according to his own creation, whereby he made all things by and for Jesus to come into them and to uphold them and to guide them so that in the fullness of the time, just when God had planned, he would step into time. The great mystery of Trinity, which we've been considering in the Heidelberg Catechism Exposition of Christian Doctrine, it set forth here. God is manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit. There's the Trinity. God manifest in the flesh. I was talking to my son the other day, lives in North Carolina, who's witnessing to a Jehovah's false witness. The Jehovah's false witnesses deny the Trinity and they don't know what to do with this text. That God was manifest in the flesh. Oh, they, they know what to do that is to hide the truth of the text. They just change it. They have their own Bibles, you know. But every once in a while, there's a text that they come across. They they figure, you know what? We can't really have that in our Bibles anymore because it denies the truth uh, that we denies the lie that we hold. Though they don't say that that there is no such thing as Trinity. But here it is: God manifest in the flesh, in the person of His Son Jesus Christ. This is the confession that's made here, and this is the confession the church makes here, there, and everywhere. God, according to Scripture, has come into the flesh. This is the truth of the Son that's given, the child who's given, the Son that's born, the, and the one whose name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is the truth of Jesus who's named by the angel Emmanuel, God with us, and whose name Jesus depicts the fact that he is Jehovah's salvation among the people who are in desperate need of salvation. This is the truth that we love, the truth of the full divinity of Jesus. God, completely God, is manifest in the flesh so that at the same time he's human, in the flesh means in humanity. He's divine, and as the church has confessed, he's not God kind of and man kind of, so that he's a third thing, a God quasi-man or a man quasi-God, so that there's this one who's not really God and not really man, another thing. No, he's God really, and he's man really, united in the flesh, in the person of the Son who takes on himself willingly, that condescending role not only but state and status and condition of guilty sinner for sinners. A man among men, a pure man, a pure God for us who need his salvation. So here it is, this divine word, and this is the word of the words. This is the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He's the one who is Messiah, that's predicted, and who is absolutely necessary that we might be saved. So he's manifest in the flesh. There's other things that corroborate this, that is, support this truth, that God is manifest in the flesh, and actually there's five of them, and that's the rest of our text. God is manifest in the flesh, and he's justified in the spirit. And there's been a a bit of a difference among theologians and commentators about just what this means. Some say it's spirit with a small s. I think it's spirit with a large s. And I think the word justification here means vindication. That is, this God who's manifest in the flesh and doesn't look like God is nevertheless vindicated by the spirit at every point in his ministry that he is God. And this is, you see, what Paul is attempting to do here to Timothy, and the Spirit is actually doing perfectly through Paul. He's vindicating the Savior, who though he came and he just looked like all of us, and before he was a man, he was a boy, and before he was a boy, he's a helpless babe. Nevertheless, he really is God manifest in the flesh, and I'll teach you why. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit who conceived him. That's not a normal birth. The spirit who was by him at his baptism and who came as this dove in the form of a dove and who came upon him anointing him for the ministry of Messiah when he was some 30 years old. The spirit who was there aiding him in his temptations. The spirit who guarded the empty tomb. The spirit who was with the disciples as they looked and beheld the things or the the angels with the Spirit, as they looked and beheld the things of the ascension. He's vindicated by the Spirit. Besides that, he's vindicated by the Spirit who writes the Bible. There's another thing that's implied here. The Spirit wrote the Scriptures, children. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and so on, because it's inspired. It's God's own Spirit writing these things of Paul and through, through John, of Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, that the same things he writes, the Spirit of God in the writing of the Word of God, recording the history and the doctrines of Jesus, is a vindicator that Jesus is manifest in the flesh as God. And he's seen by angels. Now here, misspoke myself, when I was speaking of things that spirit, the Spirit does and of the angels, but scene of angels. And what's the significance of that? How does that corroborate or support the fact that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh? Well, beloved, because angels are given here as those who are keenly interested in the birth of Jesus and in all of his ministry as those beings that are not near so great as Jesus. They are inquisitive about him, and we could translate the word seen by angels as they were eyeballed by angels, or Jesus was eyeballed by angels. This God manifest in the flesh was something of keen interest for them. Even as we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, I think, where the angels inquired into the things the prophets wrote of Jesus. So here the text is saying angels, those great stellar beings of heaven, those sinless beings, they too were beholden to Jesus. They were looking at Jesus coming, and they were those who were very, very curious about these things and very much aware of these things and very much attendance to Jesus. Because you see, as God manifests in the flesh, is now in a state of humiliation. And the angels who are servants of God and servants of God's servants will be there for Jesus' birth. They'll praise this wonderful God who has manifest in the flesh, and they'll say, "Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and toward men of God's good pleasure." They're with Jesus in the wilderness. Our angels, or, or excuse me, uh, yes, our angels. They're with him to, in the midst of his temptations. They're midst, in the midst of Jesus, and they're there announcing his resurrection, and they're there as well to record the wonderful event of heaven in one of the Psalms when Jesus came in, who is his king of glory. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. He is this king of glory. And all this to show the great mystery of godliness, not angels, but Jesus. As we've been seeing in our series in Revelation, in the first chapters of Hebrews, the apostle is painstaking to prove there that Jesus is greater than all those created beings, including the, angel, the angels, and here those who eye Jesus, who are curious about him, who want to know about this special son, this special uncreated one, who are there for the glory of God, are are in this sight and wanting to see and to know and to understand something of Jesus because they would worship him, just like we. Well, We go on, he's preached among the Gentiles. This, what the apostle is doing here, the spirit through him, to remind us of the greatness of this God manifest in the flesh. He's preached among the Gentiles as the savior of Gentiles. This is a magnificent thing. The God who was the God of the Jews, remember Israel in the wilderness, Israel in the promised land. Is the God of this whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is the God of his elect in that world. That's the idea of world. So that there's this cosmic this cosmic scope of the salvation of the, of the God of our salvation. He's not just the God of Jews. He's not there in preference for a certain kind of people who are better than others, who maybe have blue blood or Abrahamic blood but he's there to exalt his own election of grace, his free favor to all sorts of sinners, to those who were not a people, so that now they would be called the people of God. Well, he's preached among the Gentiles. And note, something the angels couldn't do. Not really. But he's preached by men among the Gentiles. Now, the amazing thing about this is that God is speaking here of the fact The greatness of the mystery of godliness in this preaching, even though it's done by mere men. But the difference, you see, between a man and an angel is that angels cannot be redeemed and they don't know the truth of the blood of the Lamb. Not really. They don't know what it is to be delivered from sin's great indictment. They don't know what it is to be delivered from sin's great captivity. Not angels. They've never been lost. They never needed to be found. But sinners who preach and sinners who are saved, they know, and they preach like no other. This is in this amazing thing, this description of the great mystery of godliness, that there were people saved now to be preachers. Now, because they couldn't hold it in, Now, because the word that was made flesh is put in their hearts, Jesus in my heart, and I've got to preach the word of salvation. And he's believed on in the world, and he's received up into glory. These things all speak of the great mystery of godliness. Oh, beloved, what do you think of that? What do you think of that great mystery of godliness? It's a revelation of God. And it's God's own godliness, if we could say that, is being God. That's why this is revealed here. Great as the mystery of well, God himself. I'll show you what godliness is. It's God being God. God being just like God must be and should be. And then... God manifest in the flesh. I'll show you what godliness is. God the Son taking upon himself the form of a man and becoming a servant of God. Now that's godliness. The godliness of this God now become man who's obedient in all things and who comes to do the will of his Father. This is divine service here divine service in a human being who comes not to do his own will, but the will of his Father. The text says this is a great mystery, veiled, it was once in the Old Testament, now it's unveiled for all to see. The greatest truth of the great God, his salvation, and his great grace There's further instruction here that's implied in the word godliness because when we think of godliness, normally we don't think of God. He's always God and always godly, therefore. But we think of people, people who are sinners and who now have been transformed to be godly. Later on in the chapter four, that's why we read it, speaks of bodily exercise profiting a little, verse eight, but godliness which is profitable for all things. And there is another saying in the Bible that the truth is according to godliness, and godliness is according to the truth. Well, this is certainly a mystery, something revealed, that there would be godliness among sinners. That's amazing. This morning, it was like all there was was ungodliness and we can tend to think because we're so sinful that's all there is in us and we wonder how God has anything to do with us. But beloved, the fact is sinners who are saved are sinners who are sanctified. Sinners who are justified, those who are given the right to life are given the Holy Spirit of life as well. The God who sends Jesus into the flesh, He's God manifest in the flesh, sends the Spirit on Pentecost to vindicate the Son's work and to continue to apply the Son's work to the sons of men. And so, there's sinners saved and there's sinners saved who are being godly and more and more becoming godly. That's how it works, isn't it? We're works in progress. You're a work in progress. Your minister is a work in progress. Paul even writes to Timothy that he's to meditate on the things that he's received and give yourself entirely to them, that his progress may be evident to all. I hope, beloved, that you can see some progress in your servant. Tell me about that once in a while. I certainly can see that in you. And it's often the case that the mystery of godliness grows in mysterious ways, doesn't it? On soil that seems so infertile, in an environment that seems so hostile to the people of God and to their growing in numerically in any way, we've seen it. And yet, this is somehow how God, our Father, works. He works And he gives us to work by leaps, to grow by leaps and wounds, doesn't he? Leaps and wounds, leaps and scars, leaps and our being led to cling to God. Whereas without the trials, we trust in chariots and horses and our bank account. We're sinners saved by the grace of God and we're sanctified by the grace of God and we're brought more and more to the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel, aren't we? You think of it. This truth of God manifest in the flesh is God who's a shepherd and the great godliness that's seen in individual believers is that now these sheep begin to follow the shepherd and they hear him who calls them by name and they follow him. They love him. They love it when he calls them by name. They they follow him who is the captain into battle. They follow him who is the great sin bearer and they cast their sins and the burdens of their guilt upon him. God is manifest in the flesh and the great mystery of godliness in the church is the, the saints love that. We love that truth you think of truths you like in your history in the history of the nations and so on things that interest you things that were good times in your history here's a statement that's to be the greatest thing that you cling to the history of God the story of God God manifest in the flesh and the story of that God that keeps on going because he's, he's still manifest, now in the body of Christ and with you, even though he's in heaven, but now in his spirit and now in the church. He's there so that we have an insight into reality that not everybody has. We know what history is. We know what's going on in the nations We have the truth that we can live by, and work by, and play by, and so we become his people increasingly. And you see, just with regard and to a practical point here, when we know this Jesus as ours, and when his own godliness is for our godliness, we begin to see that he uses us in whatever calling of life we're, we're at. And one has said, and I, I agree with this, Christianity is not doing things that are so special, nothing so special in what we do, but we do things in a special way. We do everything in a special way, and that makes all the difference. It doesn't matter whether you're digging a ditch, building a house, working at a computer, dealing with people, dealing with things. Doesn't matter whether you're a man or woman or child, whether at school or whether you're a graduate from school, whatever. It matters, does your heart and why you do things? So that the apostle even says, Whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. You see, here is the secret to contentment to finding that your life here in the shop, here in the factory, year after year after year, maybe, is significant. Because of what God and his truth has done to you and is doing to you, great is the mystery of godliness. Every child of God is this wonderful member of the body of Christ. And great is the mystery of godliness. He works not so much among the wise and the high and the rich, but among the ordinary people, the shepherds, and so on. Well, he works in the church, and this whole context here is church. We preached on this at the uh, installation or the... um, institution of our church some 12 years ago. How to conduct ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar, and the, living, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And then the truth is our text. What the church is to preach is without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God is manifest in the flesh and so on. Without controversy, this is the truth that we are to preach. From cover to cover, this is the truth. And we are the pillar and the ground of it, or we are no church, we are no house of God. But because we are by the grace of God a church and the house of God, here it is, the gospel that we preach. Jesus Christ, Christmas, crucifixion, ascension, session at the right hand of God, return, and in the meantime, the call to live Godly. Office bearers are mentioned here in First Timothy 3. The truth of godliness, the great godliness manifest in the flesh is to be seen in godly office bearers. And thank God we have them. And thank God we have candidates for them. Godly men who will lead the way, unashamed of the gospel and standing for the truth, ministering mercies, ministering the government of the church. We are blessed indeed. Godliness. So, one ashamed to do discipline, to minister the sacraments to fitting candidates. Uncompromised is this church. That's another thing about her we saw this morning. The shameful Israel was compromised. There they were, lounging by the promised land, but not ready yet to enter it. They would abide a little while by the Midianitish women. They would dabble in their idolatry to get the women. Or maybe they got the women so that they would dabble in their idolatry. Hard to know which was first. But anything of being under the yoke of God. Not so us. True? Phinehas, the example of a zealot for the glory of God, thrust through the fornicating couple. Shall we not be Phinehas with a spear? And I mean, of course, the sword of the word of God. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They're spiritual weaponry. We bring the truth. We convince people. We convert people. God helping us and the spirit working through us by the truth. But this consumes us. That's the point. This church which meets the truth of the greatest truth of them all, the mystery of godliness in Jesus, is on that behalf. We're for that cause. We are here for no other reason than the cause of God's glory in Jesus Christ. And finally, beloved, I speak of this being revealed, this great mystery of godliness in the dark what I mean by that is that it seems impossible that we can say, the text says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What do you mean without controversy? There's all kinds of controversy. Wherever Jesus went, he was in a controversy. That is, there was opposition, debate. Who are you? I don't believe you. And this and that and the other thing, the result of it was the crucifixion. There's all this controversy, all this, all of these opinions about what is true and, and what really is godliness and what really is religion, if there is any concern about God, if there is any belief in God. Without controversy, people will say nowadays, great is this truth. There are no gods, except what you make them to be. And there is no one truth. And this whole thing called Christianity and this whole Pauline theology is mythology. It's fake. And in the churches today, sadly, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Without controversy, great is the mystery of ungodliness in Christendom. Great is the mystery of ungodliness. Great is the mystery of just how far people will go to bend the truth just a little bit to get people in the door. Sad is the truth. When ministers, they get out of seminary and they got a method, they're going to pump new life into the congregation by getting a younger minister. Someone who has fresh ideas. Learned them in the Netherlands. Who knows? In Italy. Who knows? In Reformed seminary, seminaries. To be sure. Compromise comes little by little. In 2 Timothy... Chapter 3 and 4, we learn of perilous times when men will be lovers of themselves. Sounds like Balaam. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, and so on. Later on, chapter 4, he says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves, teachers. They'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Be watchful. You be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, even if that means taking a spear and running people through. Even if that means bearing the reproach and the slander of those who might call you brethren perilous times beloved not a time for the faint hearted not now not now and i believe there's not going to be a reprieve the heat is being turned up the heat of satan the fires of hell the baseless accusations that people make against churches of Christ. They are being made. The great mystery that those who would go by the name of Jesus, who's holy, as well as love, is that people deny this and they invent their own human love, their own human holiness, which is spoken of in 1 Timothy 4, as, for example, just denying meat, To yourself, or forbidding marriage to yourselves because these things are uh, corrupt and they keep you away from holiness. You see, in the name of holiness, many things have been done that's been a compromise of holiness and godliness, and they've been a stumbling block to the doctrines of free grace in those who will live free. One legalistic thing after another, one policy after another. One foisting of authority upon another after another. What shall it be, beloved? Controversy all over the place. I want to say to you, beloved, that here's what we want to do. First of all, we want to confess the truth. That's really what this means. Confessedly, great is the mystery of godliness. This might have been an old confession of faith. Maybe an old song. Look at our Heidelberg Catechism. kind of follows the the pattern of this, incarnation, and so on, the history of Jesus. But be that as it may, it's something here that stood because it's the word of God, a confession. We can translate it literally, this is something we say together. We say together with the church of Jesus Christ, there's one thing that matters in all the world. God is manifest in the flesh. This is the great thing. It's not the game that's the great thing. It's the gospel that's the great thing. It's not the fact that we're entertained that's the great thing and that gets us by. It's the fact that we're saved and forgiven that gets us to heaven. That's the great thing. That's what Christmas is all about. God breaking through. God coming anyway, though his own received him not. And God coming to you, and God coming to me, and saying, I love you. Now you love me back. And may there be this great mystery of godliness in your life, son and daughter, because I want to be glorified in you. And in your happiness, in your knowing the comfort of the gospel, you're being encouraged. No matter how you've messed up, and there's a lot of us who've messed up, I think that you're a bold enough congregation. If I asked for a show of hands, I don't know, maybe not here. But at another time, you'd all raise your hand and say, yeah, we messed up, messed up yeah, we're a bunch of mess-ups. It doesn't matter if you've had a conversion experience at one time on the shores of Lake McDonald or whatever, but maybe it's the daily mess-ups that are making you ashamed of yourself. Maybe there was a time in your life, maybe there is a time, it's right now, when you're just trying to hedge your bets about Christianity and, and being comforted and I'm going to do this with my buddies, with these with my church buddies, and all of this stuff, and we are just kind of playing the field as, as far as what we can do to find communion and significance in our life. We're a bunch of mess-ups. And the quickest thing we would deny is just that, that we're sinners. I want to leave you with a story not because it's a story, but because it's kind of parabolic. Maybe you've heard it. The story of this old violin, this old violin. Battered and scarred. Tunes were all loose, or the the strings were all loose. The bow was hardly of any use. And it was auctioned. It was going to be auctioned. That means sold. So the auctioneer didn't think it was going to be worth much. And he just said, $1. Do I hear $1? That's how they do it. Oh, okay, somebody gives a dollar. $2. I hear $2. He's about to say going, going, gone. And somebody from the back, an old man himself, as old as the violin, probably older. He came forward and he took that violin and he started to play it. After he had tuned up the strings... Rosened up the bow, he played. And children, that song that he played was so beautiful, and everybody could hear it. And everybody who thought that the violin was worth nothing now suddenly realized it was worth something because a master was playing it. A master of the violin playing a song that they'd never heard, that they never thought could come out of that violin. And so the auctioneer, quickly understanding himself, the worth really of this violin began a new bidding. And he said, $1,000, $2,000, $3,000. And on and on it went. The worth of the violin in the master's hands. You know what that's about, don't you? That's about Jesus playing you. No, playing this violin for you and through you. That is using you, tuning up the string. You know what it is. But somehow he takes us, does God. And great is the mystery of the godliness. He takes the bruised, the battered, the broken, the abused, to use the language of this world. We live an abusive world. And he makes your life a song again. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He makes your life a song again. He's playing you. That is, in the best sense of that word. He's loving you. Tuning your strings. Making you more and more in conformity to his will. And so you draw near to him. And you find from him every note you need to sing, every source of true happiness in God, in his presence. It's something like heaven. Great, the mystery of godliness on earth. In Jesus Christ, in his church, among a people that says, I believe this, I believe this, the song of the new covenant and of our salvation. On earth, God is manifest, and we go to heaven. That's what Christmas is all about. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with the knowledge that you are the great God who takes broken things And makes them fixed, not only, but beautiful. And this is how we all are, Lord. We're all in one state of brokenness or another. Always in need of tuning. Always in need of your holding us. And your wonderful song through us as you hold us. God, we confess our sins. We're just like those Israelites. And it's a shame. At every turn, we seem to go so quickly astray. It's the pressure. It's the pressure of believing, but not having power to believe. It's the impossibility, Lord, of being yours and truly growing truly bearing fruit in this winter of our discontent. It's everything that has to do with our mess-ups and the devil whispering, it's never going to be different. You're never going to be free. And we have our grudges and we have our causes that we would maintain ourselves in, even if We show partiality to ourselves and we don't know anything about love. Lord, we're sorry. But thanks, Father. You've been here tonight and you've given us to draw near to you. We can't ignore the message. We won't. Lord, we pray with gladness And with earnestness, help us, Lord. Help us to be yours. And this Christmas season, and always, to be yours, beholding the child of wonder, the God of our salvation, manifest in the flesh and in us,